Hartman. I am the MCTM Program Director for the University of St. Thomas in Houston, and I'd like to welcome you to the first installment of Partnering Through the Pandemic. On this podcast, we're going to hear from industry professionals on how the COVID-19 pandemic is influencing the future of research, medicine, and academia, and how we can all work together to combat future outbreaks. New episodes will be released every other week, so be sure to subscribe and hear firsthand insight on the pandemic from life sciences experts. The podcast is sponsored by the University of St. Thomas's Master in Clinical Translation Management Program, which is a one-year online graduate degree that teaches students how to take laboratory research through clinical trials to patient care, which is an area that's more important than ever as life sciences professionals strive to bring about a cure for COVID-19. To learn more about the Master in Clinical Translation Management Program, check us out on the University of St. Thomas's website and feel free to reach out for more information. Our first guest for the series is Dr. Timothy Boone. Dr. Boone is the chair for the Department of Urology at the Houston Methodist Hospital, and he currently serves as the director for Houston Methodist Academic Institute. Uh, he also maintains a position as professor of urology at the Wild Cornell Medical College, as well as the Texas A&M University College of Medicine at the Houston campus, where he was named associate dean in 2014. Dr. Boone received his Master of Science in Physiology and his PhD in Neuroscience from the University of Texas Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. He then went on to complete his MD-PhD at the University of Texas Medical School at Houston. He's established himself as an incredibly accomplished professional, not only in the clinic, but as a research investigator and educator. We are really looking forward to hearing his take on the current standing of the COVID-19 pandemic and what things may look like in the post-pandemic world. So with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Boone. Thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here and glad to share our experiences down the street at Houston Methodist and our partnership. Um, so I just, I kind of wanted to start off by just asking, I think what everybody's asking to each other. So how have you and your loved ones been kind of holding up through the 2020 pandemic? So have you been working mostly from home or have you been able to maintain a, more of a physical presence at the hospital? Um, it's really a hybrid. There are days when I have multiple virtual meetings and uh, just safer and more efficient to work from my study at home. And then clearly there's patient care. I still practice and operate. So uh, there are days when I'm trying to see patients and physically I need to be in the clinic and plus just the personal side of, of seeing and talking to people, even with a mask on and social distancing is I think a vital need that all humans have. And, and so many of us miss that. So I try to do both mm-hmm. every week. Yeah. I remember when the when everything was starting, we were so concerned with distancing that after a few months, I think everyone was starting to really feel it, I think, emotionally. Um, so now I think whenever proper precautions are in place, it's a little bit easier to to go about our daily lives. Um, but so I, you know, I went over a bit about your uh, background in the introduction, but I wanted to just kind of hear a little bit more from you personally about your background and um, any kind of personal stake that you might have with the pandemic. Sure. I, so my father was a urologist. I grew up with a, a grandfather who was a hospital administrator in Dallas. So medicine's been in my blood one way or another since really I was born. Um, I always pursued science throughout, and uh, I love the academic graduate side, honestly, more than the medical school side, um, because it taught me to think 
independently. It taught me to use a library when there was a library. Um, those were the days when you had to Xerox all your papers at a Xerox machine. Um, so I've come along in academia for over 30 years now. Um, I would say the pandemic, from my perspective, affected me most in terms of protecting the trainees. You know, I'm in charge of over 330 residents, and I also have about 200 medical students on, on the Houston campus. So collectively, over 500 um, trainees who are just as scared as everybody else, in fact, more so. Um, so my initial job was really protection and PPE, uh, a lot of training, you know, how do we make them feel safe in this environment? And, uh, and to emphasize that this is probably something that's not going away anytime soon. So it's also an educational opportunity. Um, so that's really where I've spent most of my time since uh, early March. Um, it's a little better now, but it was pretty intense for a while. Yeah. Well, and to follow up on the whole thing with the trainees, um, I, I was uh, the trainee affairs coordinator with uh, the Office of Graduate Studies and Training Affairs. So I'm, I'm very close with the Houston Methodist trainees. And I think that Houston Methodist has done a great job of you know trying to keep them as safe as possible. But they also made a good point that it's hard to bring the research to a full stop because what you're trying to do is you're, I mean, not only trying to combat the pandemic, but, you know, thousands of other illnesses that they're they're trying to address um, to bring to patient care. So I think yeah. while it's hard to keep the trainees safe and, it, but, and expecting them to come into work every day, it's, it is in a way essential. We, and we approached that. We took a very different stance than all the, honestly, all the medical institutions in the Texas Medical Center, uh, they essentially shut down their research and their laboratories uh, we found safe entries for the research institute where they actually came in and were screened through the loading dock so they could access the elevators and avoid hospital traffic and continue to go in their labs. And honestly, the research increased by two or threefold because there are now so many opportunities to contribute to research uh, directly related or indirectly related to COVID. So we saw the number of clinical trials go way up. Uh, everybody who was working at the bench and the research institute, um, all of our MD PhDs with A&M, they came and worked every day. Uh, and I have to say, some were probably even more productive writing grants and spending the time to work. So we went reverse. We were 180 where we actually got more engaged, more involved, really led the nation in some trials and became more uh, connected, if you will. So another reason to be proud of the institution because I saw us, instead of you know climbing into the bunker, we actually put our protective equipment and took it took COVID on head first. Yeah, well, and I think that's really great that the that the Houston Methodist Research Institute was able to to address it so effectively. And it seems that they're doing a good job keeping not just the trainees, but you know, all of the staff safe. Um, but I also, I want to talk a little bit about um, their philosophy, the whole bench to bedside um, philosophy that the Houston Methodist Research Institute kind of embodies. Um, you know, for those, for those who don't know, the Houston Methodist Research Institute and Houston Methodist Hospital are physically connected um, to kind of promote that bench-to-bedside philosophy that it takes on um, taking laboratory research that is intended 
eventually for patient care. So um, how do you think this is going to kind of impact Houston Methodist's potential to combat the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, there's there's been a lot of grant money placed available and also some philanthropic money. So I think everyone who has a, a connection to COVID in some way, and if you study this virus, you know it hits so many parts of the body, the nervous system, the blood vessels, of course, the lungs, uh, and it's so debilitating for many people. It opens up the research possibilities to uh, not only uh, what you would expect an infectious disease, but now uh, the neurological diseases, all the cardiovascular diseases and pulmonary issues, along with drug delivery. You know, there, there are drugs who work better on a delivery platform, so it could be that there's a better way to deliver antibodies, for instance, to combat COVID. So if you think broadly and out of the box, which I think all of our translating scientists do, uh, there are many opportunities to contribute if you just think about the biology of this virus and how we might battle it. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in your uh, response, you mentioned something about, you know, philanthropy and people donating towards certain causes. And I know that Houston Methodist, um, you know, relies a lot on these on these types of donations. Um, one thing that has really been brought to light is the generosity of these individuals who... Um, who contribute towards this kind of research, you know, how would you say that's, that's impacted the, the, the research that um, Houston Methodist is trying to do for, for the pandemic? Well, you know, it's a huge benef benefit to Houston Methodist and also the, the medical center. Houston has a tremendous history of philanthropic support, uh, unlike any other city I know of. Uh, so, the monies went directly, not only to support the workers, but targeted research that we wanted to do, where we really didn't have time to wait on submitting a grant because the problem was immediately in front of us every day. So philanthropic dollars were tremendous in helping start some of the trials we wanted to do and carry through because we couldn't really wait on a grant. So it jump-started uh, many of our trials, including convalescent serum, uh, remdesivir, which was an industry drug uh, that we, we took on, and then there are many others we've been looking at working on. Yeah, I mean, it, it just, I, again, it blows me away how, how generous people have been in trying to bring this, uh, bring this kind of cure to the to patient care. Um, so, well, and we talked a little bit about clinic, uh, the clinical translation process, and we talked about uh, clinical trials. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to also ask was, uh, how do you think that this pandemic is going to influence the clinical translation process moving forward? I mean, one of, one of the things that's kind of changed with this is that we're trying to accelerate this vaccine through clinical trials as quickly as possible, um, which is great because it's going to reach patients sooner, but it's a little alarming in some ways because part of the reason why this process takes so long is because you want to see how this has a global impact, not just on, you know, the patient group that you have in the trial, but, you know, how we're going to see it in a larger patient population. And obviously, this is going to be administered to a huge patient population. So, you know, there are, I think there are a lot of pros and cons, but do you think that we're likely to see a, a more sustained reduction in the time that it takes for research to reach the clinic? You know, in, in many ways, I think COVID has taken us all by surprise and, and made us look at alternative ways. You know, clearly 
the way we communicate virtually has expanded tremendously. I think, you know, cutting through the red tape and, and doing efficient studies in a more timely fashion, it showed us that it can be done. And often it's typical of that. It takes a, a disaster, if you will, to kind of rethink how do we solve this and roll up our sleeves. I think we're learning that. Calibrate a bit. In, yeah, and talking to patients and conducting our own work and being more efficient with our time. Uh, all of those, I think, are important. And I think the way we roll out trials has also changed in terms of how we communicate with the population uh, that may be interested or want to do it. You know, we had all these positive COVID patients, and we realized that their serum may be a benefit to treat other patients. And so we had to actively communicate with the city at large and say, you know, if you're willing to donate, you know, we would like to continue to aggressively pursue this trial. And uh, fortunately, we had literally hundreds of people who came to donate plasma. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, I think one of the one of the pros that could be said for the United States is that there is a fair amount of competition within the life sciences industry to bring about these new discoveries and everything. Um, but now there is this sort of global imperative to, to find something. So I think I'm not sure exactly where we're going to end up, but I think it's going to be an interesting um, it's going to be interesting to see how the clinical translation process adjusts moving forward. Um, but you also mentioned something about the city at large, you know, coming in and doing plasma do donations and everything. Um, so I think more and more people are becoming aware of, uh, you know, the biotech industry as a whole, how vaccines move through clinical trials and everything. Um, and this has really, I think, brought biotech into the mainstream spotlight. So um, I also want to hear your thoughts on how the pandemic is going to um, affect the life sciences industry. Do you see that kind of, you know, lagging and then growing, or do you see only growth? I mean, as we see more public interest, I I have a feeling it's going to kind of explode over the next few years. I'd love to get your take as well. No, I think I think the lessons learned can be applied to other diseases as well. So I, I see it only exploding when you see the competition and the race to a vaccine. I mean, you know, suddenly there were a couple of companies and then there were eight and then there were 16 and, you know, all kinds of trials around the world going on. Uh, plus newer technology. I mean, what we can do now versus 10 years ago is markedly different in terms of, of uh, synthesis and everything from mRNA platforms to drug delivery uh, to synthesizing monoclonal antibodies, which may be the solution to just simply finding the most effective antibody and then creating it in high volumes to distribute instead of convalescence serum. Uh, that would be off-the-shelf solution while we wait on the vaccine. So I'll, I think it stirred this, this interest in biotech and just science in general. I don't see it slowing down at all. Uh, the other is the interesting crossover with cancer uh, in using immunotherapy to combat this. So we've seen a lot of drugs that have been used for cytokine storm that we see after chemotherapy and they have similar uses or benefit in some ways to COVID patients. So we're seeing this crossover between fields that normally wouldn't have happened probably, but because everybody's reaching into their tool bag, suddenly you realize that there's more cross talk between diseases than we 
had imagined. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, I, there's also kind of a, um, you know, just to kind of follow up on that, there's, there seems to be this disconnect as well between, you know, reality and what's being shared. So there's all this informa- misinformation out there, sometimes perpetuated by social media or, you know, even the regular media. So like, you know, news basically so i with all of that going on do you see that being an issue with um with this industry moving forward is this like sort of widespread dispersion of, of false information oh, i think that's a, a chronic problem it's just been you know the problem on steroids if you will the politicizing of the virus which is shameful i mean it should never get there uh, you know, places like the CDC losing credibility for fear of political influence. I've never seen that in my life. And so, you know, those institutions, it's really worrisome how, you know, how long it will take to get our credibility up. Um, it just emphasizes our duty and responsibility uh, in the medical profession to really help patients find the way devoid of all the politics and only put out credible science and uh, be an institution that uh, patients are can trust, they feel are, are responsible, and try to deliver that communication directly to our patients to help them figure out what's true, what's untrue, what's just been, you know, where do where do I go, what do I do? It's it's a panic situation for a lot of these patients, and it's it's just not right. So I think Houston Mathis has to stand up and be a, a strong, credible voice from you know what's real what we don't know and even if it's hard to take and just be honest yeah well that's something i think houston methodist really does and you know having having worked there in the past their eye care values i it always um maybe not surprised me but i always had a lot of respect for the institution and how strongly they adhere um, to the eye care values and, and being respectful to patients, being respectful to the public, um, making sure that the right information is dispersed and, and keeping their patients safe. Um, so moving forward with you talking about the the prospects, I mean, I think you mentioned remdesivir earlier um, that Houston Methodist is working with them. A few other uh, vaccines has, have made it to phase three clinical trials. Um, obviously, the one from Moderna, we I haven't um, I have to go back and check on updates about that one. But um, I just wanted to ask, what uh, what do you think is the most promising prospect for combating the COVID nineteen virus and um, any future outbreaks that we're going to see? Because you know, obviously, this isn't going to be an isolated incident. We're we're going to have resurgent. Um, resources of these of the virus and um, probably going to have to immunize people uh, probably annually um, so do you see like um, what do you see being the best solution to this issue the a vaccine a treatment anything in particular that's caught your eye it has to be a combination because one a, a very effective vaccine is number one I mean once we have that I think we can knock it down but even then, we realized from the flu that just because you get the flu shot doesn't mean you're not going to get the flu. So, and that can be up to 30% of people who st- get the flu shot still get sick. So, we have to have other therapeutics to get them through, almost like Tamiflu, if you think about it, at least lower the intensity and the duration. I think we have to do the same with this virus. So, 
we need a very effective vaccine or two or three, whichever works best, but we have to have a very strong therapeutic uh, backup, if you will, for people who aren't treated, who are elderly, um, because it's so devastating. So we need several other therapeutics, including, you know, synthesized antibodies I was talking about or other uh, drug delivery to, to block the the virus when it does break through. And, and this is going to be a long run. This is a marathon. So I think all of those are going to be very important, um, along with testing. You know, honestly, our biggest problem was who's got it? Who's a carrier? Uh, what's the gender? What's the racial difference? It's huge. And so we have ton to learn about this virus that we're just now beginning to scratch the surface. But that should set up very different paradigms based on people's own biology in terms of how aggressive to be, how frequently to test. Um, you've got schools, you've got universities. This is a huge, this is like sending somebody to the moon. You've got to have the infrastructure to pull it off. And it's going to require so many people in so many areas and so many trained professionals to take this thing on that to me, it's the same thing. If you want to take this virus on, it's like a moonshot. Yeah, I, I agree completely. It's such a, I think it's such a larger issue than people appreciate. Um, and that actually, talking about that, it made me think um, there was a, a bit of a controversy in the news a few weeks ago, or it might have been a month ago. I don't, I can't even keep track of time anymore. Um, so there was a little bit of a controversy over potentially charging for a COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, you know, we go down the whole rabbit hole of med- medical care in the United States, but, um, you know, since a lot of this research was being funded through federal funding, um, through taxpayer dollars, essentially, people believe that it should be free, um, which I I don't completely disagree with. I I feel that if you've paid for it, that you should be entitled to something. But um, I think people don't really see the whole picture and how long this is going to be, how much of a process this is going to be that's going to require um, funding to get, to get through it. So what's your take on that? You know, do you think that it should be free for a certain amount of time and then to have a charge or, you know, how do you think that that should be handled? Well, I, I think it has to be free. You don't want any kind of economic barrier to get rapidly, you know, as many people vaccinated as you can and then see how effective that is. But I think then we need tools to assure that if there is any cost, it's just a minimal cost, Um, you know, measles, mumps, and rubella, and really just trying to get the cost down as far, you know, I don't think free forever necessarily is the answer, but I don't think it should be the barrier to get started. So I think the government should backstop it as long as it takes to really get as many people vaccinated as possible, and I think we can revisit the cost. Of course, Healthcare related to politics may change radically. We we just don't know. But I think for the current election cycle, say for the next four years, while we figure this out, uh, it should be free, and we should just have a campaign to get everybody treated, almost like polio. I mean, you just you have to treat everybody you can possibly do uh, to get you know get the volume of cases down. Uh, and, and really see how the vaccine works. We honestly don't know when you're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. Uh, we've got a whole 
lot to learn about how it works. And does it change? You know, does one vaccine one year work, but it changes, mutates, and then it's no longer effective. So those are things we don't know yet. Yeah. Well, and I have to say, I completely agree that there should not be an economic barrier to whether or not somebody is going to be able to be treated. You know, it, it would be very, I think, unfair for certain people to be able to be treated just because of their financial standing. So, yeah, I like the idea of, of getting it out to as many people as possible. Um, you know, it just it, I guess it's like the sustainability. If you talk about muta- the virus mutating, there's going to be more research involved, more trials involved, more patients that have to be... Uh, you know, have to, we have to administer it before we can um, give it to the larger population to make sure that it's safe. So, you know, it's it's difficult. It's a it's a difficult area to to kind of find balance. Um, were there any other specific vaccines that you have seen in the news or anything that you think, oh wow, that could be that could be very promising? Yeah, we're working on. I mean, John Cook in our research building has been a big proponent, has a core messenger RNA uh, laboratory, and he, he helps on his own research with people around the world across the street at MD Anderson. And he has a very interesting mRNA platform uh, to combat the virus, and he's working with a biotech company to deliver that. It's sort of a vaccine, but it has a very targeted approach. It's not a, a typical vaccine that you you raised against the antigen. So the specifics I'm not really up on, but John was an early adopter of using his technology platform to combat the virus. So I think there are things like that in synthesizing uh, antibody that'll attach to the protein, the spike protein you see. Uh, That's really how convalescent serum's working. So we could develop even more targeted Uh, monoclonal antibody for those spike proteins, you could neutralize this virus pretty quickly. And then it has the added advantage that if the thing mutates, it still depends on the spike protein to stick and invade the cells. So it it shouldn't really matter if the thing mutates as long as the antibody to the spike protein still works. You really don't, it shouldn't be as big a factor. So those to me are, are groundbreaking advances if we can make them work. And it certainly backs up the vaccine targeting the virus directly uh, to have this backup in your pocket uh, for those who aren't successfully vaccinated. Yeah, that, well, that sounds really interesting. I love the idea that you're, it's thinking further down the line um, for the inevitable mutation of this of this virus. Um, you know, it seems that this already takes that into account um, rather than just, you know, saying, okay, we'll just wait till it mutates and then we'll go from there. Um, you know, I like how forward thinking this, this really is. Um, so kind of transitioning over to higher education, because I know that you have such a, a a prominent role with higher education and how much you, you obviously care about it. Um, I wanted to get your take on you know, how this is going to impact higher education moving forward. Um, do you see this as kind of like a hindrance, an opportunity? Um, and and I wanted to hear your thoughts on the transition to, to online learning. Well, it's been a challenge. I mean, we had done some uh, in higher education, but uh, when you think about medical school, you think about, you know, book learning for, say, 18 months, and then you hit the, the clinics and the wards. So it, it totally has flipped the process on its head. 
we had to actively kind of on the fly figure out how we're going to do this. Um, and it was different. The, the residents were kept away from all COVID patients at the start until we sort of figured out how we're going to take care of it. And then we gradually talked around the country and our accrediting body and began to move them back in. Uh, and we really needed the, the manpower to help. Uh, so I think there's more direct contact and we've changed some of the routine meetings we have to virtual, like we have morbidity and mortality, we have case conference, we have uh, just didactic sessions, they've all moved virtual. And I don't know that they'll ever move back because we found, you know, Zoom rooms and breakouts, uh, some of the participation's actually higher than it was for in-person meetings like that. So I think the advantages are, are out distancing the, the drawbacks. Uh, but a lot of it is still human touch. You really can't practice medicine and not interact with the patients. So on the resident and fellow level, we had to adapt safety first, bring them back in carefully, keep an open communication style. We started a newsletter where I tried to pull down every piece of information they needed about their own safety if they thought they were symptomatic, where to get tested, what the reentry process is, um, who to reach out to for stress and well-being. And we we started a newsletter for our residents and our medical students, and we're on volume 23, and it's weekly. <laughs> so it, wow. it tells you how long, how long this has been going on. But, you know, communicating at my level, just like our CEO, Mark Boone, you just can't not over-communicate. You just over and over because it takes that for people to feel like that they have a reliable, consistent source of information, especially about their own well-being. So the residents and the fellows have done extremely well, stepped up. They were anxious like everybody, but I think we tried to allay their fears. Now, medical students were different. They were completely pulled out, not to touch a, a hallway, not to be in the hospital, not anything, and that became somewhat contentious because we were sort of destroying their education right in front of them. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, on the clinical rotations, what we did is front load the content. So we took all the, the educational content, the sit down learning, if you will, and the lectures, we front loaded that into kind of virtual modules. And to buy time, they would spend two or three weeks front loaded the material before they'd ever show up on the on the ward to see patients and care for them. Now, that actually turned out to be very beneficial for some of their scores and their learning because they, they had to learn a lot of the general information before they ever got on the floor to see the cases. Mm -hmm. And we have we actually have a retreat at A&M at the end of this week, a day and a half, and I'm running an hour session with the whole, the whole campus statewide on virtual learning and beyond. The idea is what do we learn from this? What are we learning and what do we take forward? What what are the good parts we take forward? And clearly front loading some of the material was very valuable because they, they went in with a better understanding of the disease they were going to confront instead of seeing the patients having a lecture the next week, seeing patients having a lecture. They, they like this organized approach. So I think that worked. The other is 
when you have, we have different sites. And so what you have is the best lectures on specific topics done virtually. You can find them and everybody can participate instead of every site figuring it out on their own and acting as a silo. So I think the consistency and the quality goes up if you take and combine forces to deliver content. And uh, I think it's the quality is better and I think it, it, it offloads some workload that others would have to do because you're not being redundant. So I think all those are big advantages that we're learning. Um, so I, you know, I think it's a lot of communication. I think it's a lot of adaptability and being flexible and what you do one week may not work the next week. You've got to say, okay, guys, we're going to know we're here this week because it didn't work out that well. So a lot of active feedback, a lot of flexibility, a lot of um, communication. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I always go back and forth because this has been so convenient working from home. Uh, you know, I, I, I did um, my online program, so it was very much like on my own schedule and everything. But there, sometimes I do feel like there's a little bit lost in, you know, being able to see people face to face and, you know, interact in that way. But I think it's also freeing up a lot of time for people. If you're talking about like uh, commute, you know, and especially, you know, if you, if you wanted to go to a lecture or let's say you're on one side of the hospital and you need to go all the way to the other side and you need to come back and take care of patients or something, you know, it just, it really just saves time, valuable time that could be used towards other tasks. So um, I think there are a lot of pros and cons, but it sounds like, what you're saying is that it's going to end up being kind of a hybrid of, you know, we're going to move more towards virtual, but we're still not going to lose that personal touch as well. Yeah. And I would say the, the biggest impact or the interview, the interview seasons here, it's totally disrupted that because both at the medical student level for undergrads that want to go to medical school, all those interviews are virtual. Now mm -hmm. there's no in-person out. It's the same way with residencies and fellowships. So we're having to convert totally to nothing in person and all virtual. Uh, that's a radical change uh, when you're trying to pick a resident for the next five years and you, all you have is a virtual interview to figure it out. So we're all under the gun. So we've had to develop um, virtual town halls to introduce Houston Methodist residency programs to the world at large we're you know we're putting it out on twitter uh, we're working carefully on a kind of global general uh, video that every program can use about houston mathis and living in houston to try to attract residents and then the program specific things so we and i don't think it'll ever go back the cost of traveling for residency interviews was thousands of dollars it was four to six thousand dollars to go to like you know, 10 or 12 programs, and it was huge burden. So I think at the end of the day, you know, COVID or not, I don't ever see us going back because it was such a burden. So I think, and I keep telling all my GME programs, just get ready, do a real good job this year because you're going to fine tune it for next year because I don't think we're going back to in-person interviews. Um, and I have to say, it's a very effective way to do town hall. Uh, interviews, I don't know. I'm, we're just going to have to see. But when I need to meet with the class of, of students, you know, we can get on a town hall, use the chat, use open box, get everybody in the in a virtual town hall. And in many ways, I think it may be better 
way to communicate. Uh, you just have to become skillful at virtual communication yeah. and seeing if people are engaged. We're still trying to study who's sort of zoned out, turned off, and who's engaging virtually. And I think all of us as educators are still trying to figure out what's the sweet spot. How do you keep people engaged and involved in a virtual environment? And how do you identify people who are just sort of drifting and zoning out? Uh, how do you catch them and re-engage them? So these are hot topics, and I think we're all trying to learn as educators how do you become skillful. Exactly. Yeah, for me, for example, a lot of it is like body language. And it's hard whenever you're virtual to really get the same level of feedback, um, that, you know, immediate feedback. But yeah, I, I mean, just the convenience level of being able to just log on to something is, is oh, it makes life so much easier. <laughs> um, I know. Yeah, well, and that kind of brings us to, our, to my next question, too. So uh, what kind of outcomes from this pandemic have, have really surprised you? I know there's a lot of, there's been a lot of positives, but there's also obviously been a lot of negatives. I mean, we talked a little bit about the, you know, the political aspect of this pandemic. And I would say that was something that, that really shocked me that I, I would never have expected. And I don't know if it's isolated to the U.S., but, you know, or maybe it's a little bit more widespread. That was a more negative thing that, that really surprised me. But also there were a lot of positive things like the, I would say, the generosity of the masses. You know, we talked a little bit about philanthropy earlier. Um, that, you know, maybe not so much surprised me. I guess the the quantity surprised me, how many people really um, put themselves out there to, to help. So what has kind of surprised you about this pandemic that, that really caught you off guard? Um, something I didn't appreciate, but a real positive for me is how the, how the ICUs dealt with this pandemic coming on so fast. I mean, it's not like we don't have ICU patients anyway after major surgery or people who are really ill on a ventilator. Um, the ICU's ability to adapt technologically was just amazing. There were a lot of creations. We already had a few beds that were virtual in the ICU, meaning all the tubes and pumps and everything that connected to the patient were moved you know, outside of the room. So there wasn't a lot of entering and exiting, uh, but they put in high definition cameras and you could zoom on just where an IV entered the skin to see if it looked red or needed to be changed. They virtually changed the ICUs to a virtual ICU. And so they finished up the one they had done already, and then they took it to every other ICU, and now they're moving across the system. So this rapid use of technology to provide safety and not lose efficiency just amazed me how quickly it did. So when you go to the ICU now, it's like an air traffic control center with monitors and cameras and everything else you can imagine. And they're taking care of these very ill patients, but in a so different way. Uh, and then if you put artificial intelligence on top of that, you know, it's, it's amazing where medicine can go. But had it not been for the push of the academic, uh, of the pandemic to uh, force this change more rapidly, I'm not sure how long it would have taken. And so it became amazing to me to see the tenacity of people, the creativity of people. When pushed to the wall, they didn't just throw, you know, throw up their hands and go home. Uh, they actually dug in deeper, harder, uh, and worked uh, as a team even better. So, again, it just reassured me that I picked the right profession. Yeah. I was certainly proud of of my, you know, 
colleagues and co-workers, all of our trainees to see medicine step up the way it did. And, uh, and I hope we continue to get accolades for it because people are putting their own lives on the line, leaving family behind, uh, dog tired, scared, uh, all those things. And, uh, you know, couldn't be prouder. Yeah. Well, and, you know, if you go on and watch the news every single day, there's so much, um, you know, they, they sensationalize everything and everything is negative. And I just, you know, I, there was a point during this whole time that I was just getting overwhelmed with how much was out there. And um, it, it just all seems so bad. But I think if you really look for it, you can find the positives that, you know, even if it seems like things aren't do, are you know, going very well for us and they're not in some ways, but I think, like you said, I mean, so many people have really stepped up to the challenge and, um, and really surprised me and, um, made me feel good about the world we're living in, you know, the, the industry as a whole. And, um, I think it's, it's great that we have that. <laughs> that we're very, very lucky for these individuals who are, um, contributing towards finding a cure and, and combating on the front lines. Yeah, the, you know, I would say all the discussion about diversity and everything else that's going on, you know, all I had to do was walk through the ICU and see the immense diversity, everybody working as a team, uh, nothing to do with color, all about ability, all about pulling together. I mean, it just sort of put all the other noise at the side for me because I saw really what diversity brought to the table to take care of people and patience and it's real and it was it's living every day you just have to open your eyes to it and avoid the noise and all the politicization that's on the other side because the the real fact is there were people working together of every gender every race every background every you name it uh towing the line and taking care of people who were very sick yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you bring up the topic of diversity because I think this year more than ever, it has become such a prominent topic. And with the country as divided as it is and with people, you know, feeling like they have to choose a side politically, I think it's really important that we remember that this is something we're all going through together. This is something that we're all experiencing as a whole. Um, so when it comes to things like diversity, it is so important to have people represented from represented from all different races, all different backgrounds, um, you know, gender, everything, being as inclusive as possible to make sure that everybody's equally represented within this industry. And um, I think it's it's so important that we that we emphasize this and how we're going to be combating the pandemic moving forward. Um, so, I mean, with that, I mean, we're, I think we're about at our time. So was there anything else that you wanted to share? Any other personal anecdotes or, uh, experiences that you've had throughout all this? Well, you know, I was there at the inception of this program when it was first, you know, discussed amongst ourselves as something that we could partner and be unique with. Um, uh, and this was pre St. Thomas, that, that partnership, this was, with another university that was more distant. And we were sort of brainstorming a, a program we could bring to bear, mainly because Houston didn't have anything like it. We thought if we're ever gonna be a real biotech center, we need this whole army of people to understand the business side 
of commercializing and moving material beyond. So those were the early conversations. And I went out and found a couple of donors um, who provided some scholarship money to help kick it off. So uh, fortunately, we had a great partner in St. Thomas, and that honestly worked out better than what we were talking about before uh, on a variety of levels. And uh, the leadership at St. Thomas couldn't have been better. So I think the culture, the values, the fact that we're faith-based and centered on patient care first and foremost led to this tremendous partnership. And and I see it only growing. The need is there, and I, I think it will continue to grow arm in arm uh, and produce some really uh, quality master level technicians, if you will, around the business side of biotech. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I mean, we're really excited about, um, we're working with Houston Methodist and we're very lucky to have partners in you and, um, you know, the exposure that our students get to uh, the projects that are being done there, the work that's being done there. I mean, not even just with the COVID-19 pandemic, but the research that you all are doing, um, you know, every day trying to bring different cures to, to patient care, I think is just fantastic. And we're so grateful to, to have you as our partners. Um, but with that, I guess I, we can go ahead and wrap things up. Um, I just, I wanted to thank you so much for being our first guest. Um, you know, we really rely on UC Methodist and this, this partnership between our institutions. Um, and if, uh, if anybody wants to learn a little bit more about the clinical translation process, or if you're um, interested in earning your graduate degree, you can check out our online program and learn more about how you can help bring essential technology like a COVID-19 vaccine to patient care. So um, I hope everyone enjoyed this uh, first installment of Partnering Through the Pandemic. Um, and you can check out our NCTM Instagram page for announcements on our next guest. So thank you again, Dr. Boone. And thank you so much for those listening. We'll see you in the next one.